Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. I hope that you had, hope that you had a wonderful. He's trying to scare me to death. <laughs> hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and time spent with family. I was just telling Ted that we spent Thanksgiving with my in-laws uh, up in, in South Carolina, and um, they had invited some friends uh, over to to eat with us on Thanksgiving Day, and 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 one of the ladies they had invited had. We had met before that used to be a neighbor, but no longer is a neighbor. Anyway, was inviting back. I won't bore you with the whole story, but she came in and, and she's looking at me and she goes, I, I, I know you, I know you. Um, don't tell me, don't tell me. I know you. You're Caroline's husband. <laughs> and I said, I just knew you were going to say Brad Pitt. <laughs> we, we got along great for the rest of that time, uh, but I hope you guys had a wonderful time with family, uh, getting to maybe renew some old friendships and, and folks that you've gotten a chance to, to hang out with again and, and with uh, just being able to eat well, so we're excited that, you, uh, that you're back with us this morning. Um, you know, with Thanksgiving kind of in our rearview mirror, you know what's happening next, right? I mean, all you have to do is listen to the radio. And all you have to do is watch TV and listen to the ads that are coming on. We are already, many of you probably already got your Christmas decorations up. And you've got everything uh, done out. If you've been over toward the mall, you know what's happening because uh, of the traffic that's over there. And for all of you Hallmark Channel lovers, <laughs> you've got your movies. And uh, you can watch those. Uh, I told the first service, I think it probably takes, uh, that the season in which they show those movies lasts longer than it takes to actually film one of those movies, but uh, if you enjoy those, you're getting your fix in, and, and obviously Christmas is upon us, uh, but you know, as the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but one that I read this week wrote this, he says, there is, however, a sadness and a darkness lurking beneath the traditions and the holly jolly attitudes that we put on. It manifests as anxiety and frustration and a tiresome hurriedness. He says, we must do this, make this, give this, buy this, watch this, visit this. The sheer amount of pressure we put on ourselves during the holiday season is astonishing. He goes on to say this. He says, as our schedules fill up with all kinds of activities in the name of celebration, our tolerance for patiently awaiting the true celebration, the day of Christ's birth, fades pitifully. What a sad commentary on our culture and how unfortunate it is that by the time that Christmas Day actually rolls around, many folks can't wait for it to be over. I seriously, really, really hope that you will battle against that urge that may well up inside you this year. Perhaps that happens not only because of the busyness and the, the crush of, of Christmas commercialism, but also because we do not actually spend our times preparing our hearts for the celebration of Christ's birth. Um, perhaps we dive too quickly into the deep end of the pool at Christmas time without properly giving ourselves the opportunity to prepare our hearts to anticipate that which is coming, and we fill our minds with, with the fact that all of this has to be done and this needs to take place and this party needs to be organized and, 
And in the meantime, we don't fill our minds with the awe and the wonder of exactly what Jesus came to do. In truth, I believe that's at least part of the meaning of Advent. Um, Advent is the time on the church calendar that occupies the four Sundays that precede Christmas. And for some of you, the observance of Advent was probably something that, that uh, may have been a major part of your upbringing. It was, it was just as natural as anything else was at the Christmas time of the year. For others of you, that may not be the case. And you may not, even, even though you're familiar with it, you may not know exactly what all that may mean. Um, by definition, Advent means the, the point to the arrival of something or someone and specifically, as it pertains to the, the, the calendar of the church, by the Middle Ages, Advent came to, being, uh, to, be, to mean something about the, the pointing to the birth and the arrival of Christ. And that's why it was placed on the church calendar where it was immediately preceding Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Christ. And as such, the observance of Advent really is... is is there to point us to that major event that is going to happen? And, and in some respects, particularly in our culture, it, it comes along to kind of slow us down. It, it, it comes along to force us to, as Christians to, to, to wait. It, it forces us to reflect. It forces us to, to ponder the implications of the birth of this child in a manger after 400 years of silence from God. From the time that the last prophecy was written until the time of the birth of Christ. 400 silent years. And it forces us in that process to reflect on the mission of why Christ came and what he came to accomplish. Particularly for miserable sinners like us who because of our offense deserve the sting of death and deserve the curse of the law. As one has put it, Advent is a time to ponder. It's a time to, to wonder and to and wait. It's a time to collect our thoughts and to prepare him room as we wait patiently on him. Advent's going to be our focus over the next four Sundays as we look forward to the celebration of the birth of the Lord Jesus. And, and as such, each Sunday is going to be marked by a different theme and we're going to begin the first one today in which we're going to consider the hope that Christ brings. And then on the next successive Sundays, we'll consider the aspects of peace and joy and, and love that Christ brings as well. So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the prophet Isaiah chapter 40, to a very familiar passage of Scripture. We've looked at it uh, in the past, but it's such a wonderful passage of Scripture, particularly at this kind of time of year. And, and, and I want us to consider the promise of the Messiah the promise of the Messiah and the birth of Christ, the hope that that brings to our lives. Now, before I read the passage to you, I think it's important that I set it up for you so that you understand some of the historical background uh, that's included here. Um, the, the prophetic words of Isaiah here in chapter 40 were written to a, a people who would live after he died. He, the, these words were written to the children of Israel who would ultimately be taken into Babylonian captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar and his forces in 586 B.C. And at the time of their captivity, their Judean homeland had been completely leveled. The temple had been burned to the ground that Solomon had built. It was completely uh, demolished. And now the, the people of Israel were, were, had been taken away and they lived in Babylonian 
uh, captivity. They lived as household slaves and servants to the Babylonians. And, and what that means is that this message of Isaiah's prophecy was intended for folks who had lost their hope. In fact, they were the epitome of hopelessness. They were the embodiment of what it meant to be discomforted. They were in distress. They were experiencing pain. They were going through sadness and misery. And Isaiah's prophecy was written to a people who were suffering, to a people who were brokenhearted, to a people who were troubled beyond belief. And I have no doubt that there are some of you in this room who can identify with them. No, you're not slaves and servants in a Babylonian household, but nevertheless, you know what what sadness feels like. You You know what it means to have a broken heart. You're acquainted with distress and pain and sickness and suffering. And the truth be told, you are ready for some hope to come into your life. Well, let me say to you that the words that we're going to read this morning and we're going to look at are words that were not only applicable to those Israelites that were in Babylonian captivity, but they are still applicable to you and to me today as well. The message he delivers is for us too. So with that, let's hear from God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of God. Comfort, yes, comfort my people says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him and he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. And in this season of thanksgiving and as we begin to prepare our hearts looking forward to the birth of your Son and our Savior, I pray that we would continue to be thankful people, recognizing that every good and perfect gift ultimately comes from you. And so we, your people, gather together on a day like today with our Bibles open and our hearts open and our ears open to what you would say to us. And we ask you that you would feed us from the the bread of life this morning. That you would satisfy our hearts 
with that which only you can give us. And that you would recalibrate, refocus, retune our thoughts and our vision away from the things that perhaps are clamoring, constantly making noise in our lives and help us to to focus in on you, to see you for who you truly are, and then to be able to, to live our lives accordingly in light of that truth. So I pray all this would happen so that you would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise and our lives would reflect the truth and reflect your beauty. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now this passage that I just read for you, as you can imagine, to a bunch of displaced Jews who were now slaves to the Babylonians, well, this message of comfort and hope would have been welcome news. In fact, infused into this text, I believe, is an element of of expectation. It's an element of anticipation of what's going to come. Because right now, in their circumstances, everything that Isaiah is talking about seems very distant When would this happen? How would this happen? When would it come about? The passage itself is interesting in that it's broken down into four distinct parts. And each part represents and is identified by a specific voice that speaks comfort and hope to these needy people that are are captive. And it assures them that they'll eventually be brought back to their homeland. And I want us to look at each of those voices independently of one another and then maybe try to synthesize the message that they they bring together. Um, the, first, the first voice we realize comes there in verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. And let me read, read part of that again for you. It says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, for us to understand the impact of such an announcement, we've got to understand why Israel was in the predicament that they were in. They were there, they were enslaved to the Babylonians because they had worshipped false gods, because they had dealt unjustly with one another, because they had engaged in immorality and they had treated God's messengers with contempt and with hostility. And as a result, God punished them by allowing other nations to come in and conquer them and take them away into captivity. But be that as it may, Here in these verses, we recognize that in spite of all of that, there was still hope. In spite of the fact that they were were undergoing punishment for their sins, they still had hope. It's a verse that tells us that God still loved them. He had not turned his back on them and forsaken them completely. He wanted them to know that they would not remain in captivity forever. And consequently, God sends his prophet Isaiah to his people to tell them to be comforted. And Isaiah's message of hope and comfort was that their warfare or their severe trial was over. That their punishment had reached its conclusion. That they had been pardoned for their iniquities. In other words, Isaiah announces that to them their sins had been forgiven. And and their comfort lay in that hope. The hope of God's wrath against their sin having been satisfied. Now, I want you to consider what good news that would have been. Consider, consider the, the hope that that would have brought. You see, though, though it had been dark, and though it was still dark at the moment, through Isaiah's prophetic word, they realized that there was light at the end of the tunnel. 
He realized that there was hope. The days of distress would not last forever. And here's what I want you to There's some of you in this room, I have no doubt, who need to hear that. You need to hear the same message. You need to know that there is hope for you. You need to know that, that you can, too can experience pardon. And you may say, you don't know where all I've been and you don't know what all I've done and you don't know all the places that I've gone to and the things that I've engaged in. And I would say I don't, but I do know this. According to the scriptures, you can be set free. You can be set free from your bondage and the sin lifted. This is where these ancient writings, this is, where, this is where the prophet Isaiah finds its significance for you and for me. You see, the, the, the pardon from sins that these ancient Israelites received came on the basis of the same pardon that you and I receive. In other words, they, they recognized that they could receive pardon because the same event that you and I can recognize we receive pardon. For them, it was something that would happen in the future. For you and me, it's something that happened in the past. And what that is, is that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. And on Him, all of the sins of the world were laid upon Him. And He was nailed there for the punishment of our sins. And as one has stated, through the cross, though the cross is an event in history, it's tra it transcends history. It is an eternal event. And its significant reaches to all humanity across all time. Christ died so that sinners from across the globe and across the centuries might be released from their bondage to sin and receive pardon. And I want you to know that was the same hope that these Israelites who were in Babylonian captivity had, and it's the same hope that you and I have. It is based in what Jesus Christ has done. And consequently, what the prophet Isaiah announces here was not only a good news of hope for those ancient Israelites, it's good news of hope for you and for me. And that's the first voice that I want you to hear on your outline this morning. Notice this, the first voice of hope announces salvation to those whose sins are pardoned through Christ. Salvation comes to those whose sins are pardoned through Christ. And that's good news. It's good news that brings comfort. You know, whether you realize it or not, it's the greatest need that you have. You may think that the greatest need you have right now is to have some sort of infusion of financial aid into your life to help you get through this Christmas season because you got all these presents that's got to be bought and you're not sure how they're going to get them. Maybe, maybe you think that the greatest need, hope you have right now is that this broken relationship that, that you had really hoped would be fixed by now is still not fixed and, and, and it's brought great sadness to your life and emotional distress and so you really want this relationship to be fixed and that may be what you believe to be the biggest need that you have what I want you to know is on the authority of God's word the greatest need that you have and that I have is not something to fix our finances or fix our our struggles with our our friends or our, our family it, it's not emotional it is not physical the greatest need any person can have is that they need to know that they have received pardon for their sins And the only way that that happens is through recognizing what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, the true meaning of Christmas is that Jesus was born in order that he might die in the place of sinners, that he came to save people from their sins. And this first voice of hope that we hear from this text announces to us that salvation comes to those who have been pardoned through Christ. But then Isaiah continues. 
his message from hope is not yet complete because, in fact, in verse 3, this voice speaks out once more to those exiled Israelites. What we hear in this verse, we recognize that Isaiah speaks hope to the captives by letting them know that they would not be slaves forever. The voice tells them to build a highway in the desert. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, commentators are kind of divided on how they interpret this. For some, they look at this and go, okay, the, 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 the distance between Babylon and, and, and Judah was so far, but they were going to prepare a way in that desert, and, and God would lead out in front of them, and they would follow, and, and he was going to make all the crooked places straight, and he was going to bring the high places low and the, the low places high. Other commentators said, no, it's more of an accurate description of what the land of Judah looked like right now. Because, as I said, when, when the land of Israel had been invaded by those foreign captors, they had leveled it. And, and all the places where all of the, the wonderful pictures that we get in the, in the Pentateuch of, of land flowing with milk and honey, it was no longer flowing with milk and honey. It was, it was a dry, deserted place. And all the people that once populated had left. And, and so they're saying, no, this is more of what, what is being talked about. And Judah had become a wasteland. Here's what I want you to know. And either way you take that verse, no matter which way you interpret it, I want you to know that it meant that one day these captive Israelites would no longer remain captive in the land of Babylon. What it meant was is that they would be taken out of their captivity and brought back to their homeland, a land that would one day flourish again. The question that really concerns me about this text and has always sort of tripped me up when I first read it is what does it mean when he says he's going to make the crooked places straight? What does he mean when he's talking about smoothing out the rough spots? How are we to understand? How are we to interpret what Isaiah says here? Well, in the New Testament, we learned that it was John the Baptist who was the voice of one who came crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the coming Messiah. And when John the Baptist came and said, prepare the way and make your way straight, what was the message that he preached? Well, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says that he came and he preached these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so clearly, John the Baptist's message was that in order to prepare the way of the Lord, in order to straighten out the crooked places, and in order to, to smooth out the rough places, one must repent. What's repentance? Well, if you've been with us on our journey through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, you know we hit it just about every single week. Repentance simply means to turn from the direction in which you're going and go the other way. It means to turn from the worship of false gods and false idols that will only bring us pain and suffering and begin to place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus to turn from selfishness and to turn to the Lord. One writer has put it this way. This is how you clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. This is how you make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. This is how you build a highway in your, to your heart for God. And when you do that through repentance, God responds by showing you his glory. And in that, we recognize the second voice of hope in this passage. Notice the second point on your outline. It's this. The second voice of hope cries out for repentance so that God's glory may be revealed. It cries out for repentance so that God's glory may be revealed. Remember, after these Israelites had been taken captive, 
The temple that Solomon had built, this grand and glorious temple, had been completely razed. It had been burned to the ground and, and completely decimated. And, and though the temple was once was rebuilt, once they re-inhabited the land of Israel, the second temple was never as glorious as that first one was. In fact, you don't even read in Scripture that God's glory ever rested upon that second temple after it was built. So when we see that, and it talks about the glory of the Lord there. What are we to understand about that? Does it mean that Isaiah got it wrong in some way since the God's glory never rested upon that second temple? Well, I don't believe that's the case. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy pointed to the coming of one later for whom the glory would completely rest upon. In fact, we read about that in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul even writes these words in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What that tells us is that according to Isaiah's prophecy, what was still in the future for these exiled Israelites would ultimately come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has come and he has revealed himself. And in doing so, he has revealed the full glory of God to mankind. And that's the beauty of Christmas. That Christ has come, that our Savior, our Messiah has come and he has revealed his glory to us. Sometimes I really think we miss that. I think we get so enamored with the things that this world throws up to us and says is glorious. And we get so excited about those things that we miss the most important thing. And that is that Jesus Christ has come to reveal his full glory to us. And you want to know how, as the song says, let every heart prepare him room. You want to know how to prepare your heart for that revelation of his glory? It's through repentance. Through allowing the Holy Spirit to bring to your knowledge and to your understanding areas of your life in which you need to turn Crooked places that need to be made straight. Rough places that need to be smoothed out. That through repentance we prepare our hearts to, for the revelation of the glory of God in our lives. But there's still another voice that cries out. Isaiah alerts us to in verse 6. We read the command to cry out. And then there's the question, well, what am I supposed to cry out? And then there's the answer. Cry out this. All flesh is like grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Now, when you think about that, you think, well, where, where's the hope in that? I mean, you got beautiful grass, you got beautiful flowers, and all of a sudden, they just fade away and die? How is there any hope with regard to that picture? Well, consider this. Imagine that you're one of those Israelites in captivity and imagine that you're enslaved to a world power that is so strong that no one can defeat it. And from your perspective, there's no way that you could ever defeat a foe like Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. But Isaiah says all that it will take is one little blow from the mouth of God and every earthly power will be blown away. In other words, God is bigger and God is stronger and he is mightier than any earthly ruler. And in fact, there's not even a contest between the two. And what Isaiah wants these hurt and sad and suffering Israelites to know is that their confidence needed to be rightly placed 
in the mighty and the sovereign God. And to hammer his point home at the end of verse 7 and on into verse 8, Isaiah repeats what he just said. He says, surely the, the people are like grass and the grass withers and the flower fades. But then he switches things up in verse 8 and he says, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Here Isaiah contrasts the, the passing nature of humanity and the passing nature of nations. And he compares them with the never-changing, always dependable Word of God that stands forever. And, and what was it that the Word of God had said to these exiled Jews? Well, it had said that they would eventually be freed and that they would eventually come back to the promised land. And therefore, these Israelites could take comfort in knowing that God was in control and that His promises were always certain. And so the third voice in this passage that cries out to us, tells us this. The third, the third voice of hope cries out for confidence in God's sovereignty and in his sure word. We need to be aware of that same voice in our lives. Maybe the main thing, as I said before, is that you're facing intense battles and struggles that you're up against and you may feel as if in some ways you're just like one of these captives. You're just enslaved to something that you can't figure out how to get out of. If so, I want you to know the voice of hope assures you that God is sovereign. It assures you that the things that you are facing are nothing but withering grass. They're nothing but fading flowers for him. That in his mighty abilities and his omnipotence, that with one blow from his mouth, everything could be completely different. And he blows them away in his perfect timing. That's where we trust his sovereignty. Not only in his omnipotence to do anything he wants to do, but in his omniscience to know when those things need to be done. And furthermore, you and I can take comfort in the fact that we have in God's word when Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Listen, everything in our life is transitory. Everything you see, smell, touch, hold on to, drive this afternoon, place where you're going to sleep tonight. Everything in your life is transitory. It's all going to change. It's all going to wither. It's all going to fade. But God's word will last and remain forever. And what he promises, he will do. And what he says is that any life that will open itself up to him in faith, he will come in and he will save them and he will abide with them. That's a promise that you can count on. What some of you need to hear today is that the circumstances in which you find yourself at the moment are just that. They're just momentary circumstances. Be they good or be they bad. You may be riding high or you may be in the valley right now. Whichever place you find yourself, know this, the grass withers and the flower fades. But God is sovereign and the word of God stands forever. The voice of hope cries out for confidence in both of those facts. Now that same confidence carries over into the final voice of our text. It speaks out beginning in verse 9. We get the image of a nation of Israel that's coming out of the valley and climbing up in the mountaintop and it's declaring to all who will hear that, 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 that the good news is, is that God has been their Savior. And so twice they're told to herald the good news or to bring good tidings. 
And the good news for them in that day was that God was going to act on their behalf to defeat Babylon and to release them to go back to their homeland. And then, then you get what I believe is one of the more beautiful pictures in all of, in all of the Bible with regard to God. Todd Bevel is sitting right over here. Todd has always told me that I learn by contrasts. That, that I'm, 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 a, I'm someone that, that sees the, the, how, how the scriptures come and, and present one thing and then, and then present sort of like the opposite side of things. Presley tells me all the time that one of my favorite sayings is on the other side of the coin. Y'all probably know that. I don't even realize how often I'm saying it. But, but it's because I see things from one perspective and then you look at that same truth from another perspective and it looks completely different and yet it points to the same truth. Here's what I want you to know. Probably the reason I do that is because the Bible writers write that way. And in verses 10 and 11, we have a beautiful picture of God that is a contrasting picture, but one that brings him into the fullness of our understanding. Notice what it says. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And then you get verse 11. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Here we see what I believe is a beautiful picture of God who is both powerful and mighty, and yet he is also caring and gentle. He comes with power in his arm, and yet with that same arm, he grabs up the lambs and cuddles them up into his breast and and carries them to safety. Now consider the hope that is there in that picture and how it would have brought hope and and, and anticipation to the hearts of those Israelites who were in captivity. It told them that God would not only come and fight for them, but it also told them that he would gently lead them and care for them. And in this we get a picture of God's judgment on his enemies, but also on his blessings on his children. And that's the fourth point that I want you to see, the fourth voice of hope proclaims that God is both tough and he is tender. He is tough and he is tender. He is tough on his enemies. He is tender with his children. Now, friends, that was not only good news for those children of Israel. That's good news for you and for me, too. Because you see, the good news of the gospel is that by his life and by his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection... Jesus Christ has defeated our greatest enemies. He has defeated sin and death and the devil. And by doing so, Jesus offers the blessing of salvation for all who will trust in him. The good news is that Christ came to set captives free. He came to bring peace and to make peace between God the Father and sinful humanity. And as Isaiah says in verse 10, God's arm is mighty. It's a mighty arm for winning that battle. But then as verse 11 says, he is a loving arm for carrying weary lambs just like you and just like me. And that's a word of comfort. That's a word of hope. And it proclaims our hope is in God who is both tough and tender. And so when we look back on this passage, we realize it's a message sent to a bunch of exiles who were suffering and who were going through difficult times. And we realize that it's a message of hope. And in fact, as I read an Advent devotional this week, it says this, for hope to exist, unfortunately, it looks like it has to be, there has to be hopelessness first. A perfect world wouldn't have any need of hope. 
Deliverance arrives undeservedly and perhaps unexpectedly, just as in the unlikely way God came to earth to to provide a once and for all substitute for the sins of all men on that first Christmas. And that's why things can look bleak. But that's where hope lives. Some of you need to be reminded of that. And as such, a reminder should tell us that as we look expectantly toward Christmas, we have to be careful not to allow ourselves to become sidetracked by all the trappings of commercialism and consumerism so that we minimize and even forget that the message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ was born to die. He died to defeat sin and Satan and he lives forevermore as our great shepherd who will lead us and will take us safely home to be with him forever. And there is comfort in that assurance and that's the reason that we have hope at Christmas. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence. Attempting to take these voices and and harmonize them and and, and to, to put them into one sentence, a long one, Nevertheless, here's what we learn. We can wait in hopeful anticipation of Christmas because we're certain of the salvation that Christ has secured for us, confident in God's promises and power, and assured that the same Christ who fights for us will also carry us home. That's why I think Advent is such an important time because I believe it really is there to recalibrate our thinking. And it forces us to consider the fact that our hope rests not in our circumstances, but in the one who is faithful to his promises. And it reminds us that with the birth of Christ, the Prince of Peace has come. And it also forces us to recognize that his birth ultimately led to his death on the cross, by which he took himself upon himself the punishment that was rightly ours. And it also forces us to recognize that even though he died, he did not remain dead, but he, he rose again on the third day thereby defeating our greatest enemies. And observing Advent then really drives us to this understanding. As we sit where we sit at this day and time, we recognize that in many respects we have a lot more in common with those captives in Babylon than maybe we thought. Maybe their hope was in that God would one day come and do for them what he's promised he's going to do for us. He was going to take them from their captivity and bring them back to their homeland. And they waited on him to do it. And you and I sit here and we wait on the day when the archangel Gabriel will blow his trumpet and the king of kings and lord of lords will split the eastern sky and he will come back and he will redeem us and grab us to himself and then we, he will establish his earthly kingdom and we will reign with him forever. We await that day when we will be taken from this time of sinfulness and captivity to our own sin and, and, the, and the wickedness of this world and we will one day live with him in eternity because that is the advent that we look forward to. And that is what this Christmas time of season points us to, to the one who came to deliver us from our sins and to the one who has promised that he will come and receive us to himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy to us. We thank you for this season in which we look forward to the birth, the celebration of the birth of your son. But I do pray that you would help us 
in the midst of all of the, the joys that comes during this time of year, that we not go so fast that we fail to really allow our hearts the time to, to ponder on these deep issues and, and allow anticipation to build. Help us to continue to look toward you, our only source of hope. And then as you remind us of that, satisfy our mouths with wonderful things and our hearts with the, the truth of your word. We thank you for Jesus, without whom we would have no hope. We thank you for sending him to die in our place, to rise again, and we're thankful for the promise that one day you will return for us. We praise you for that hope in Christ. In Christ's name, amen.